0: When you have a podcast guest who manages to fill up about 65 minutes of content and only answer two questions, um, it's a good idea to get them back to finish off some of the stuff we're talking, talking about because uh, it was a pretty interesting um, dive into sports science, strength and conditioning. Um, so I thought Gary uh, Gary McCoy, uh, the Australian baseball team, strength, conditioning and performance coach, would be um, excellent to – have back to finish off our conversation and dive into a bunch of things that we didn't get to that I think are very relevant to um, our audience so Gary welcome back
1: thank you Stuart it's great to be back mate I normally only get called back because I haven't paid my bill or s- for some other reason so uh, to get a to get a second chance to talk to you fantastic
0: uh, well as I said I could I could have kept the podcast going um, for another hour but I I had a meeting to go to and I desperately need to go to the toilet. So I had to cut you off. But um, (laughs) the more I've poked around in sort of this space after you talked, I thought, well, hang on, we've got to to keep going, keep the conversation going. So, um, yeah, I want to really dive straight back into it. And and one of the areas we were going to talk about and we didn't get to and we were just talking off air was how culturally in Australia we just aren't in the weight room early, mm. and when I say early, I suppose as young um, as our counterparts in the US where, you know, when I showed up to college in the US and it was day one of strength and conditioning um, baseline testing, they'll like jump on the bench and see how many you can punch out and I couldn't even balance the bar. Um, you know, well, right. I, that was, for sure my age here, quite some time ago, but there was just no uh, push to get people into the weight room and then we chatted to one of our strength and conditioning partners, um earlier in the year who said he was doing work with first-round Fremantle docker players who couldn't play in the mm. AFL because they weren't strong enough, um, which is kind of mind-blowing to mm. me. So I was really keen to, I guess, yeah, yeah. have you just download, like when when should young players be in the weight room and, and, and from a sports science perspective, like what things would a parent be looking for to sort of be comfortable that their child should be throwing iron around or doing something <coughs> Uh, from yeah. a strength perspective.
1: Yeah, well, look, mate, um, yeah, you, you nailed it really well, and that was the first thing. By coming to the United States, I understood the prevalence of the strength and conditioning culture that is here. Most of it came out of uh, Nebraska in the mid-'70s when the University of Nebraska football team started doing heavy Olympic weightlifting Um for their uh you know for their uh, american football teams so the linemen would have more leg strength etc cetera, etc cetera, and then all of a sudden you know they have a surge of success which everyone looks in and says wow we should all be strength training and we should all be doing these olympic lifts so let's model some of maybe even the soviet block type lifting programs and models and like this is back mid-70s right so um a certification grew out of there. Um, but, uh, the organization today is called the National Strength and Conditioning Association. You may have seen a strength coach with credentials uh, that says CSCS um I actually went through that certification uh, when I first um, got to the United States because it was kind of like the, the gating kind of entry into the industry. The interesting thing with all of this though, is that um, it is a, a very heavy strength and conditioning model predicated around Olympic lifts and lifts such as bench press, you know squats, deadlifts you know it's those major kind of muscle group lifts that every strength coach tries to apply across all sports and this is one of the fundamental problems with the strength and conditioning model versus say the australian sports science model of which there needs to be some balance between the two it's really the definition of strength is what we have to get to because i'll tell you now a pitcher doing squats in the weight room, and I think we touched on this uh, in the last podcast, can actually exacerbate the imbalances that they have in their body through that exercise. If you if you bilaterally load an imbalanced structure, you know the side that's strong will get stronger, the side that's weak will stay weaker, and there could even be a you know an increase in the deficit between those two. So. so Defining strength is the very first step. You know, what does strength mean? And I'll use this example. It's not bigger muscles. In 2017, um, Noah Syndergaard you know, adds 17 pounds of muscle, says he wants to throw a baseball every fastball over 100 miles an hour. Well, guess what? Um, more muscle does not equal more velocity. It's the synchronization of movement from a neurological pattern beginning with force production in the ground that creates velocity for a pitcher. And so when we're talking about strength and we're talking about strength training, we must first define, one, the, the key performance indicators that are required for a pitcher, a hitter, an infielder, an outfielder. What are those key performance indicators? What's going to make them great? at their sport, in their position, and then two, evaluate the physical systems that are going to provide that technical skill. So the physical system assessment below that has to be okay. Are they at risk of injury? Is there muscle joint kind of imbalance in any one of those structures? Is there um, a load-based chronic um, adaptation to rotation that we need to offset to get some sense of neutrality before we even load in a specific vector. So without trying to be too scientific on this model, um, what, a, what a young player uh, kind of needs to do and look at is determine, okay, um, if baseball is my sport and I'm, say, 15, 16 years old, um, let's, let's remove this um, kind of fear of weight training Because the positive thing, if done correctly, the correct weight training movements will add like a force couple around the joints, like the knee, the ankle, the hip, if you've got good muscular balance through those those areas. And if you train the body correctly through the right vectors, you'll actually add some connective tissue resiliency. So things like, you know, the, you hear about all the time, the rotator cuff uh, strains, the, you know, the UCL ligament strain, all these kind of things we can create by loading the body in specific vectors, we can create some resiliency around connective tissues. And that's what we really want to apply and be focused on for a young athlete. So making sure that they have a balance of strength around each joint, and then are uh, we... Are we challenging, you know, the the musculoskeletal system through distracted movements? Because that's what baseball is. Like, you think about release point on a fastball, right? That moment of release. Everything from there is distracted. The shoulder is distracted. The elbow is distracted. The wrist is supinating and distracted, right? So training through distraction is the... One element that I say is missing quite often in standard strength and conditioning models: everything's concentric. Like your example of, you know, get it, yeah, you know, have to get under the, you know, and do a bench press, you know, as a uh, as an assessment. There's no reason to do a bench press for baseball. <laughs> it's not an exercise, and as a measure of strength, it's measuring nothing that correlates to the sport itself. So, one, it is safe done correctly, and two, start to build resiliency. In the connective tissues, so that we can offset risk of injury.
0: So you said, without getting too scientific, and then used the word vector about sixteen times there, which um, has had me scrambling to try and figure <laughs> out what that means. Sorry. Um, so I'm sorry. Let's go. Yeah. I'm a parent. I've got a youngster in the mm. thirteen to fifteen range. Um, perhaps yep. I'm not yet. That my kid is not yet in an elite sort of high-performance program, but it's showing some signs.
1: Mm. Um,
0: my idea of lifting weights is I go to the gym, I crank out bench press, I crank out uh, uh, squats. I'm happy to detail my uh, uh, one-rep max there if there's any interest from the audience. But, you know, like I do these compound <laughs> core lifts, etc., etc. That's yeah. the extent of my yeah. uh, weight training. Mm. How do I introduce my child into a weight like where do I go to get the best information and what do I get my 13 to 15 year old what, what are things they could start focus on if we keep this sort of entry levels and, and simple
1: Yeah um, there's a few things firstly in terms of the way they manage their bodies and um, the very first thing is to think of not just doing exercises and, and hoping that that transfers and translates over to baseball, um, it's let's design something that is specific to the individual and specific to the sport of baseball, even at a young age. You know, I think we can start to get some specificity around modeling performance. Now, you know, there's a whole, you know, there's massive amounts of research and study in long term athletic development. And, you know, the needs at that younger age are probably more psychosocial than they are strength conditioning related. We want to make sure always. It doesn't feel like, well, it's a positive experience, you know, all those other factors. So um, I, I want to be sure that that is always mentioned because quite often, you know, if we take this approach that it's, you know, military, there's going to be four lifts a week and it's going to be this, this, and that, all of a sudden it's worked to a 13-year-old and the fund gets removed from the game, right, because there's so much emphasis on it. So I think it's always important to note that. But getting started, one of the one of the constructs it often gets missed again in strength and conditioning is the way we organise movement through the body. The body organises movement from what we call a proximal to distal relationship. So proximal, centre of mass, core, right out to the ex- uh, the extended, you know, the fingertips to the toes, right? We we have this neurological pattern that manages from the core on out. So. As a young athlete, starting by focusing on the core. And if you look at all good athletes, mate, and the one, the one, um, there's one athlete that will be coming through that I'm hyper interested to see. Um, I've seen this kid at eight years old. I think he's now 10 or 11, but I was watching the way he moved. Um, and this is David Nelson's son. Eli, who was the bat boy for the Brisbane Bandits, right? He's at eight years old. He is playing with 12 year old kids. And I stood there one day, you know, between innings, you know, between games of the doubleheader on the Saturday thing it was, and I'm hanging out there with David, you know, with having a Gatorade or whatever, watching these kids run around. And I said, have a look at Eli. His trunk stiffness is the key to his success. A lot of these kids look like I don't know if you have them in Australia, these, these, these balloons that wave in the air, they look like a big, tall, tall guy that's just waving in the air. Their trunk is just all over the place. So if you think about the physics of movement and core trunk stiffness, that is something that translates out no matter what we do. So for, for a young athlete, I would be working specifically on that framework to begin with and then working up and down the body and looking at the joint by joint kind of strength around the joint. So if I'm looking at, you know, are they strong in the quadriceps and uh, is there an imbalance Are they weak in the hamstrings? You know, what do we have to do? Things that are common is what we call posterior chain weakness. So all the muscles at the back of the body become weak because if you're like me right now, mate, I'm sitting at my desk here you know, 4.30 a.m., um, and we're having this conversation, but I'm going to sit at a desk today for probably eight hours, right? So my whole body, um, all the posterior chain muscles are just getting weaker and weaker and weaker. We do not turn off adaptation during the day. So we're constantly in that adaptation mode. So for a young athlete, a posterior chain focus and a core stiffness focus sets up the foundation for movement success. Again, we want to define strength by how well we move specific to the sport we're trying to play, not how much we bench press, not how much we squat, not how much we deadlift.
0: So how do you... How does a young athlete start working on that core stiffness like what are, what should a parent be looking for and what can a parent because it's obviously going to be that you'd hope at that age your yeah. parent is involved you know when your kid just in a gym on the road mm-hmm. throwing it around so what what can mm-hmm. they look for what like what are telltale signs on uh, strength deficits and and weakness around joints what 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 are the warning signs along that way
1: Yeah there's some simple tests that can be done. Um, and we actually employed a number of these at AIS uh, with the um, Australian national team back in 2018 when we were there for camp. Um, one of the very first things we brought in was try- trying to understand that stiffness, not only trunk stiffness, but also for those athletes, the, the trunk endurance. So something as simple as a plank, right, a, 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 a plank for the core, can your young athlete can they hold that for thirty seconds? Can they hold it for a minute? Can they hold it with good form for three minutes? Right? Anything beyond that, I think, is is probably wasted. But you know, what what can they do from a uh, a stiffness slash endurance model for the trunk? Can they hold that plank? Um, the second thing is, um, if they're in that plank position, can they raise their left arm and can they lift their right leg? That cross pattern. Can they do that? Is that even, is that even feasible for them? Can they have motor control to be able to do that both right and left side? Those would be things as a, as a parent, I would start out looking to, to understand that core stiffness, you know, that, that first initial point. Now, the second part of the question is what can we do to look at, um, uh, the uh, joint by joint relationships? Something is simple, and, you, and, and any um, parent can probably find this online. There's two, exos- there's two kind of assessments that we often do. Um, one, they're called an overhead squat and a single leg squat. The overhead squat, you know, both arms are raised high above the head. The you know, athlete squats down comfortably five times, and what we look for there, Stuart, is we're looking for the joint by joint interaction. If we say in that movement, see the feet turn out or the knees fly open, we know there could be tightness in the glutes or weakness in the adductors. This is a system of levers, you know, that we've got to have, you know, balanced to a degree. So you can go online and find those assessments. And actually, what I'll do, Mate, is send you over some links to some of those as well. So any parent can look them up. I would do those assessments with my child, have a look at it, and then follow a a pattern to say, okay, the goal here and the priority always is this neurological clean movement within a gravitational field which is constant. That's what we're looking for. And if we start there and we focus there heavily, adding load becomes the second part of the part of the question.
0: So when you say adding load, that I'm assuming that means additional mm-hmm. weight um when are you mm-hmm. like when do you determine because you hear the common you know i've mentioned on podcasts before oh, i want to wait till my kid hit you know mm-hmm. the kid has to hit finish puberty before you know they start lifting yeah, yeah. Cause it could stunt their growth um so when when is that true and when could or should you be adding load to a, a young person's program
1: yeah, and, and that's the, uh, it's a really interesting question. And, you know, you could, you could go through scientific literature for the rest of this week and find competing arguments around this. So the original theory was a growth plate based theory that if we loaded or compressed, you know, the, the bony end joints where these growth plates and models exist, um, that could potentially stunt growth. There was this, thought- around that, I think, also back in the 70s and maybe early 80s around strength and conditioning. Um, That said, um, you know, chronological age is a totally different construct than biological age. And what I mean by that is not all 12-year-olds are 12 years old, right? How often, like, you watch the Little League World Series, which in a major league clubhouse there's two things that stop everybody, one, it's the movie Major League because it is so funny. And two, it's the Little League World Series. For some reason, everyone just wants to tune in and watch it. Um, it, it. It's amazing, right? But you see 12-year-old kids there, and this is, you know, no slide on the Puerto Rican teams or anybody else. These kids are shaving. Okay, hang on a minute. Yeah, he's 12 years old. Are you sure? You we checked that birth certificate? Yeah, a lot of these kids mature so damn early that, you know, to say or, you know, Stop or start weight training only at sixteen is totally erroneous. You know, it's the every every individual child has a development path and process. There is no one size fits all. I think guiding the guiding the gate that guides the, the the start of strength training is those assessments I talked about. If you have a an athlete that is competent in terms of movement strategy, then we can begin load. And when, when I say load, I'm talking resistance. And resistance can in, in initially take the form of even just an unweighted bar of some description. It can take the form of tubing. And one of the things we want to always understand, because of the lifestyle of, of kids today, I would do twice as much Twice as much on the backside of the body than I would on the front side of the body. And if a parent just simply followed that model, again, they're competent in movement based upon the assessments that they've done. Um, they want to begin loading, start really light, start with tubing, continue that reassessment process to make sure that we're not creating any imbalances in the body and continue the load model. That's to me, uh, that to me is a better kind of thought process than it is to say, you know, know, wait until the kid turns 16 before you start lifting weights.
0: Now, you're not just a strength guy, so I've got some questions I want to kind of fold into this as well. And, you know, there's more, um, you know, the conversation is really around uh, load management and not, I'm not talking about the weight, Mm -hmm. I'm talking about how much, you do and the the activity. So yeah. what sort of advice yeah. do you have? You know, you've got a kid who's going to practice two, three times a week, playing a game on the weekend in Australia typically. So it's not a game every day, but it's practice. How often should they be doing the sort of strength side of things to in? And, and the reason I ask that is how much balance should there be between sort of that go, mm-hmm. go, 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 go. Do they need to take days off? Should they be lifting three times a week? Well, what's a, you know, and there's no hard and fast for everyone, I acknowledge that, but what mm. for, for yeah. a parent, how often should a kid be in the mm-hmm. gym doing strength and conditioning work?
1: Yeah. yeah, so it's a great question. So first and foremost, I never like to see baseball activity after a gym session, right? It's important to put the cart and the horse in the, in the right order. Um, we want the energy available to the athlete, um, especially at a young age, focus primarily on skill development. And that is everything that they're going to do on field, right? That should always be the priority with with um, available time and available energy as a resource to that young athlete. I like lifts that occur post-practice. I like lifts that occur on, on days off away from practice. And I always want to have a recovery period because It's not the time actually in the gym that's creating the adaptation. It's the recovery, the rest and recovery that athlete is having. One great method to understand physiological adaptation is to start getting a record for your athlete of resting heart rate first thing in the morning. So if, for example, Stuart, if um, you wake up uh, tomorrow morning and you check your resting heart rate, you might find it's anywhere from... 40 to 60 beats could be as high as 70 beats. Everybody then again is different, right? Start getting a trend line on resting heart rate. And then as a child goes into sport and weight training activity, if that resting heart rate is increased in the morning, that's a really good sign potentially that there is overtraining going on, that the body is struggling to recover. The second part of that equation is too, If there is resting heart, higher resting heart rates first thing in the morning, very easy to check. Higher resting heart rates in the morning could be that there's a disease state coming on. And when we're overtrained, we tend to be more susceptible to things like colds, you know, et cetera, et cetera. God forbid COVID, right? You have that, you know, you have that susceptibility. I think when you're, when you're over. Trained as well, so there's technology that does this. There is Whoop, there is Aura Ring, which is you know bearing out as being a really great tech. We want to get. Um uh, our plan was to get this uh, aura ring on the um, on the guys going to the Olympic Games. If we went, um, the um, the data coming off those products are great. I don't think you need them for a young athlete. I think you do resting heart rate in the morning to understand and model: are they overtraining right now, or are they undertraining right now? But you need that baseline kind of resting heart rate to understand it. But that to me is kind of like the the methodology relative to load. If you're training three times a week, say it's like. You now what I remember uh from back home summer baseball was Tuesday Thursday night maybe Saturday uh morning might have something maybe there was a maybe a Tuesday Wednesday Thursday night games on Sunday the ideal models around that is short lifts post practice in season And when that athlete is off-season, that's when you... It's kind of like taking the car off the track and getting him into the shop. You can do a lot more with modelling, right, around strength training and and changing out the the engine a little bit more, um, you know, during the course of an off-season. In-season, keep the lifts short, sharp, high-intensity, low-volume. That, to me, is the answer for in-season load management.
0: Just... I want to... Just quickly pivot off because it's always been quite fascinated. When like when I played college baseball, you'd be up at six o'clock in the morning you get a lift in, go to class, eat, go to practice. Yeah, yeah. Um, never yeah. ever thought, and it wasn't the prevalent methodology then to lift after practice. But I'm interested yeah. to know when do the like when do big league athletes when do, when do they get their lift in, and and what does a typical yeah. big league lift look like?
1: Yeah. Um, a lot of a lot of factors there, and I'll tell you, my first year in Houston was hilarious. Um, so it's 2012. Um, called up to the big leagues when we had a managerial change in Houston. Tony DiFrancesco became the manager. Brad Mills was fired. This is a funny sidebar story. Uh, I was a Triple A with Tony. Early in the season, um, there was no hint of Brad Mills being fired. We're playing in Round Rock, Texas, on my team this year at Triple A is Cody Clemens, who's Roger Clemens' son. And so Roger was hanging around, you know, the team all the time. I got to meet him in spring training. You know, the, when we opened in Oklahoma City, Cody comes up to me and says, hey, my dad's having a dinner tonight. I really want you to come. I said, well, my fiance, she was at the time, said she's just flying in. He goes, yeah, bring her along. The Clemens family was so incredibly grateful, uh, graceful with, you know, their approach to me, their time, uh, some of the best conversations in baseball I've ever had have been with Roger Clemens. Roger Clemens was in our coach's room um, in Round Rock in 2012 with Matthew McConaughey, right? Standing there, there's those two. Bert Hooten, um, pretty famous Dodger pitcher who's our pitching coach. Leon Roberts. Um, if you ever watch George Brett getting pulled out of, you know, killing an umpire from the pine tar incident, Leon Roberts was pulling him out. Tony DiFrancesco, who was our manager, and me—we're sitting there having a beer at the end of a game we had won. And Roger was there with his mate Matthew to to catch up with 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 Kobe. Um, <clears throat> Tony was sitting in front of our locker. Tony gets a call, shows me the phone. It's Jeff Lou now the general manager. I go, okay. He goes, and he gets on the phone. Yes, Jeff. And I just see his eyes getting big. Tony's dream has been to manage in a big moment he got called up and he goes "Ozzy, we're going to the big leagues and I was like holy crap you know so this is real so when I get to Houston there's a strength coach already in place and it's Gene Coleman this is uh Gene was in at the time I think in his might have been his late 50s early 60s I can't recall his exact age but has been historically um associated with strength and conditioning in baseball for a long time trained you know Nolan Ryan trained so So many different guys through strength and conditioning is kind of an idol of mine kind of growing up, you know, coming out of Australia. I'd read stuff that that Dr. Jim Coleman had written. So, you know, I knew him from spring training and everything. He was like, because we had shifted out most of our team at that point, we traded off a lot of players. We're on target for 111 lost season. So we could get draft picks and rebuild. That was just part of the model. When I got to the big leagues. I walked in the weight room, I, I looked up on the board and the model was, you know, Monday, Thursday, you know, chest and triceps. Um, uh, sorry, Monday, Wednesday, chest and triceps, Tuesday, Thursday, back and biceps. And I looked around, and I thought, yeah, someone's, you know, this is a joke, right? This is, uh, that's, you know, I can find that program in any muscle and fitness magazine. And I have the athletes coming up to me and go, yeah, this is nothing like what we do at AAA. We need you, There's a reason we've requested you to be here. We need to get this done. And I said, well, I want to be sensitive to Gene. I said, he's the major league strength and conditioning coach. So Bud Norris, the pitcher, says to me, or he goes, Ozzy, he goes, I want to work out in the morning. He goes, I really like the morning workouts. And this is, you know, this is a guy that only pitches every five days. So it's pretty easy to you know, get his lifts in, right, to try to manage his lifts. So he'd pick me up at 7 o'clock in the morning. We'd go to the Houstonian, a uh, beautiful club, um, not too far from the ballpark, where we'd get his lift in. Um, this was my my price on him. I said, you've got to buy me coffee on the way out, buddy. So he'd buy me a coffee, we'd go back. Then I'd go over to Brett Wallace's condo, train him there for an hour. Then I'd go um, uh, to Gold's Gym with J.D. Martinez, train him there. I'd done four, sometimes five sessions before I had my 12 o'clock meeting uh, with Tony De Francesco to see what the lineup was like that night to go to the ballpark. And the reason we were doing this all off-site was to not... Um, what's the word I'll use? To not kind of um, kind of politically offend Gene, Dr. Gene Coleman, who's been doing this for 30, 40 years, but the players just didn't, they, they preferred this model. So we used to do it kind of around the back of the, of the entire program. And so it, that, that was somewhat politically difficult, but because of the need to do it outside, we would, we would have those workouts. And Gene, Gene always wanted to get out of the ballpark early, so I'd say to him, mate, I'll stay back if anybody wants to lift late. And in the position players, that was the thing I would say to them, hey, get your lifts in. I want two to three, you know, full body, depending on time of season. This was the last half of the season. I said, I want two to three just, you know, we're going to do just one set per exercise, get the intensity up, hit it hard, wind you down, get you the hell out of the ballpark. Sometimes I was there till 1 a.m., you know, with guys lifting. But that was optimal. Then I can send them home. They get a great night's sleep. And they come back recovered to the ballpark the next day. So their energy systems are great and they're ready to, you know, do the things that a major league baseball player does, which is incredibly difficult, is is hit that 100-mile-an-hour fastball. It's, It's make adjustments during the course of the game. You need to be really, really well recovered. So the overall model for me was maximize recovery, just maintain strength to the highest level I can, and those two things alone with, with very short time frames, sometimes lifts were 20 minutes for guys. And that was about it. Um, so that was kind of the model. And again, it was never one size fits all. So to answer that question, yeah, um, it's a long day when you're a young strength coach in the big leagues, my days would start sometimes at 6am and I would finish at 1am. I go home, get five hours sleep and just go again. So yeah, I don't know if that helps.
0: Living the dream. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah yeah. I often uh, I use the, the term sometimes mate I said it's like oh we're like moths to the flame oh it's the big leagues look at those lights look at those fans yeah that wears off in about three days it did for me <laughs> that was just the amount of work mate it's like being in the military the only thing no one's shooting bullets at you well that you know of um, <laughs> that's the only you know that, that was the correlation to me it's like god oh, this is just it's like being in the military it's gotta be mm.
0: What about in the in the minor leagues? I'm interested to know as well, like you mm. you're on buses and whatnot, so you're just trying to fit it, strength yeah. working around these really hectic schedules, I'm guessing, like how do, how do you motivate guys <clears> to do
1: that? Yeah <clears throat> oh. it's, and you know what what you just asked that question you asked was the one question, the now general manager of the Milwaukee Brewers, David Stearns. Who was hired to be an assistant general manager of the Houston Astros asked me prior to going, like at the end of that 2012 season, when I decided, yeah, this this does not look good. Um, He was, I had nine hours of interviews in Houston. They had uh, uh, terminated Gene Coleman and and Jeff Lunau, picked me up and dropped me off at the airport, too, um, um, in Houston. He said to me, He goes, yeah, we're just going to go through the motions, and uh, you're going to have these interviews with you know people all day, but you know just plan on you know just relocating to Houston. We want you here, and it's like shit. Okay, then I've got you know wife who's you know a lecturer at Arizona State University. I've got two kids in high school. Geez, how am I going to pull this off, right? So, a lot of things led up to um, me not going back to Houston, but. The reason I bring that up is the resource allocation you have at the big leagues is so markedly different than what you have in the minor leagues. And when I decided I didn't want the big league job and Jeff turned around and, and said to me, well, you know, I want to keep you in the minor leagues. I was done because I was now kind of exposed to good resources, you know, um, had everything at my fingertips in, in the major leagues. Like the TSA, the um, security company that, that checks you in at the airport, they come to the ballpark. And, and check your stuff to get on the bus to go to the charter flight. We, you have to deal with nothing. Whereas in the minor leagues, I'll never forget these road trips. And I, we were in the PCL, the Pacific Coast League, which has been reformatted in the last two years. But when I was there, it was the toughest travel league um, in history. Uh, and I was talking to Jason Roberts, uh, another Australian athletic trainer who I met. He was with the Rangers when I met him. He's now at A with the Marlins. And I think they're talking about a significant... Um, upgrade of Jason I think he could either be in the major leagues or in a coordinator's role probably next year with that organization and Jason you know sadly for me he's he's the one of the best athletic trainers I know and the reason I say sad is people look look at me and say oh you've got a bias because he's Australian I go, no I've got a bias because he's really freaking good at what he does right he's a brilliant athletic trainer so we talked a lot about the Pacific Coast League and kind of like the economy of scale and the travel was just sometimes insurmountable. And I'll give you an example. We had a game at AAA. We played in Fresno with the Oklahoma City Redhawks. We fly into um, Sacramento. We play four games there against the Oakland A's affiliate, drive down to Fresno, play a four game um, series there against the San Francisco Giants affiliate. We finished that game at 11, I said to the athletic trainer who was kind of running the travel schedule as well, right, he turned around, I said, so um, Otis, I said, what's happening? Um, what's the schedule tonight? And he goes, well, he goes, we've got to sit around in the clubhouse in Fresno till 1 a.m. Then the bus is going to pick us up, drive us back to Sacramento. Uh, we'll be at the airport there probably around 4 a.m. He goes, the southwest terminal opens up, you know, they're, their uh, check-in desk opens up at 5 5 he goes we've got a 6 a.m flight and that's the rule in the pcl when you're flying you've got to be on the first available flight out we flew from <clears throat> uh, from sacramento to vegas connected in vegas flew to nashville got into nashville at 4 p.m we had a seven o'clock game that night and so we had the seven o'clock game so uh, no we've had zero sleep right a seven o'clock game that night it was the wild series. The only time I ever got thrown out of a game was uh, during this series, which is a whole nother story. Um, but we had we had zero sleep, and then the very next day, I had a co- like a coordinator come in. So a coordinator is a guy from the you know from the kind of the front office who's in oversight of certain things. This was a player development coordinator came in and said, "Why don't you, why aren't you lifting this morning?" He goes, "You know, we, we, these guys should be in the gym." I said, "They've had no sleep." He goes, I don't care. He goes, I should be lifting. I go, you're out of your mind. I go, I I cannot fundamentally take a a player in to a YMCA, which is where we would have to lift in the minor leagues. We'd go to all these different YMCA's, all these gyms. Each team must provide a gym that's accessible. We'd have to go in. I was like, there's no way. I'm putting guys in the weight room today, tomorrow, or the next day. It's going to take us three days to catch up. And I'd always have the support of my coaching staff. They're like, yeah, listen to him. He knows what he's Talking about, but you'd have people come in from the outside, just challenging you the whole time on, we want bigger, stronger, bigger, stronger, faster, breakable. I mean, is is, is the analogy I would use. So, to answer that question, the it is so scattered. There can be thirteen-hour bus rides. There can be flights all day. And we want to maintain strength. Holy cow! That it's recovery first. Maintain strength probably second. <laughs> yeah, I put that as a very, very distant second in the minor leagues, especially when you have stuff like that. Mm. Again, the bright lights, right? Yep, yep.
0: The, um, the other bit I was interested in is <clears throat> supplements, like for, particularly for younger players. Yeah. Is there any advantage to them mm-hmm. all or should it, if a kid eats a well-rounded meal, <clears throat> they sh- that's enough energy and nutrients for them to continue physical development? What, what's your take on that?
1: Yeah well firstly let me state that I am not a certified or registered dietitian or nutritionist but I'm really lucky I have one in my house. I have a professor of nutrition from Arizona State uh, as my wife Maureen McCoy. She's actually doing a TED talk uh, in a couple of weeks on food insecurity in college athletes. So yeah I'm married up definitely in terms of intelligence and one of the things we connected on all the time was this whole idea around supplements. Now as you know, it's it, I think it's close to now a fifty billion dollar industry globally is the supplement industry. If we analyse the effect of supplementation, um, a good you know forty nine point nine billion of those supplements are uh, pee down in in into the toilet every day, right? The body doesn't absorb a lot of stuff. So rule one is work. The body, the way it was designed to work, and that is through a great balance of macronutrients in a healthy meal program, especially for a growing athlete. The one thing I would merit, um, and you, you'll see, you know, I hope you know, there's not young kids trying to apply fads like intermittent fasting because they heard of their favorite athlete doing that, or you know, if they're applying um, or they're using a supplement as an example Um, that they heard their athlete taking notes. Get the majority of your requirements for fuel from macronutrients in whole foods and in good meals. The one, the one area I would lean into a little bit more that always feels and appears deficient. um, And especially as if we're starting to load up kids and we're starting to get them in the weight room, just increase the amount of protein availability that is going to be important. So You know, in the minor leagues, like in the major leagues, we had two chefs, right? They were cooking meals. They cooked basically whatever we wanted. And I had a full-time nutritionist on staff with me in Houston, and we would talk about, you know, what was upcoming, what the needs were, what the individual taste profiles of the athletes were like. Um, You know, every Dominican player wants rice and beans. Don't ask me why. That's what they want in their diet. Okay, fantastic. Um, In the minor leagues, you are lucky to get, you were lucky to get what the clubhouse attendant either can afford or trades out for. Um, you know, with, with tickets, we had a guy in Oklahoma City that, you know, every night we're eating Italian and we found out the reason why we're eating Italian. He really liked the girl at the Italian restaurant that he was getting the food from. So, so they, he was going there every night. I'm like, Huey, if I see another piece of pasta in this damn place, I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go insane. And, you know, it was with me at the time. It was, who would laugh his head off at some of this stuff was Ryan Roland Smith. I had him for a short time in Houston and uh, at Triple A, and uh, he was there during what we called the pasta era uh, because Huey really liked this girl. But that's that's kind of crazy crap that goes on around diet dietary planning. So, look, mate, to answer that question um, for a young athlete, there is no supplement that I would recommend. As you get into that, you know, life gets really quick. Um, all of a sudden maybe after you're 18 or if you're in a tough you know, final year of high school maybe the one thing you could probably add safely as a multivitamin for the older athletes there's only a couple of things I ever recommend one of them is actually creatin and creatin's had some yeah, I think historic poor negative press but if you do the research on creatin it's being used as a supplement um, in cardiac rehabilitation for over fifty years, successfully, what creatine does it helps it helps speed up mitochondrial activity and, in, and increase um, the size of the cell where that mitochondria is 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 being is active. So apologies again for the getting me down that rabbit trail scientifically. Um, creatine's not a bad supplement if taken correctly. It's got to be taken with carbohydrate and no more than three to five grams preferably about 30 to 40 minutes pre-lift, you're going to get some good response from creatine. Um, if you're that older athlete, again, a protein shake or supplement, preferably a whey protein or something that your system will um, absorb that doesn't create any kind of gastric uh, issue, um, is sometimes beneficial. On top of that, omega-3 fatty acids, uh, possibly, if um, if necessary anything that's going to stimulate collagen production for repair of tissue growth is probably beneficial for um, an athlete that's playing maybe 70-plus games per year. Those are the things that I would recommend. But again, I recommend them on the advice of a certified dietitian or nutritionist. And uh, if parents out there are looking for something for their kids, um, the thing I love about Australia the most is we are closer to to farm-to-table and the food is so much fresher than it is here in the United States. We're trying to feed 330 million people here, right? Um, so it's really difficult to get great um, farm, you know, fresh foods on your table. We have to work really hard here to get it. In Australia, it's everywhere. Mm. And I think um, that good Australian diet can really help. Mm. Um, I obviously
0: conscious of time. One of the areas that I'm, you know, you've clearly on the leading edge of technology and and where sports science is going. I'm really interested to know, to know <clears throat> and kind of get you just rolling on what's the next wave of sports science? Where is this space going? Mm. Um, and, you know, like we – it wasn't that long ago that AFL players started wearing, um, you know, GPS trackers. And it wasn't
1: yeah, – you know, we, yeah. st-
0: we started tired. this is how much – you know, how much distance this guy runs and then it got into load management through that sort of the biomechanical monitoring. But yeah, what's the next wave? Where's this, where's this going?
1: Yeah. It's funny you bring that up. The only uh, hiatus I've ever had from uh, professional baseball is when I took on a role as senior applied sports scientist in North America for catapult sport, who were exactly that company you talk about with the GPS monitoring. Um, They tracked me down in Taiwan when I was working with the team there and, you know, I I was ready to come home. So Um, yeah, I got to understand the, the beauty of the technology was it provided objective data. And then I could, you know, squash these conversations around, he's tired. Uh, he's ready to go. He's out of shape. You know, I could squash subjective information with objective data. So I really got in and around sports technology. And when I applied a solutions type model for Catapult, their business really took off. And then I went over and did similar things for Whoop while I was still working in baseball, kind of keeping one foot on the technology side, uh, one foot as a practitioner. The, the most, I think, liberating technology that's happened in the last five years is probably sleep tracking. That has been probably the most, I, I think, significant change, and I'll give you an example of how it's changed. Um, Justin Verlander, when he was healthy um, in 2018 and nineteen. Um, he used to have what he called sleep club, right? You know, the first rule of sleep club, get to sleep, get your eight hours, right? So they would compete on how many hours and what the qualitative um, assessment of their sleep was using a, a variety of different technologies. So, Sports science technology, the very first thing you've got to um, ask yourself, you know, before diving in and buying, say, a whoop strap or an aura ring. And it was really interesting. Um, the kid I mentioned in the last podcast, Mitch Ellis, reached out to me and says, hey, Gaz, he goes, I want to buy a whoop strap. He goes, a few of the players have got it and love it. Uh, and So my first question is, well, why, Mitch? Do you want to buy that because the players have it and love it? Do you want to be seen wearing this? So he goes, "A jewelry for you? What is it? And he goes, No, I just think, he goes, I really want to monitor my sleep a little bit better and see if I'm recovering well. So that's a great question and that's a great answer. So the technology I recommended to him was a product called Aura Ring. And I have no affiliation with either of these companies. When I've done my homework, um, an Aura Ring has a 92% kind of confidence interval around the data of sleep, heart rate variability, all these other markers. Whereas, whoop, um, in my study, only had a 74%. Sometimes, some sometimes as low as 50 percent error coefficient to it and so because of that first ask the question what do you want to measure and why and is it going to is the data coming off that going to transform any behavior and then secondly what's the best product to do it and it's not always the most accurate product we want repeatable reliable information it, it, it's not always the most accurate product the one that is sustainable is the one that I, I say is has the least friction. So Aura Ring, um, I'm wearing one right now. I can drop it on this charge cradle and then, um, I charge, takes about 40 minutes to charge good for five days. I, I don't have to take it off for five days. You know, it costs about 300 bucks these things. They're brilliant and they do a really nice job of providing all the required elements that I want to see relative to my individual sleep. So sleep has been kind of the, I think the most cutting edge, uh, tech. And transformative approach that we've seen in the last five years. It used to be that sleep was frowned upon, right? That you know, oh, you, uh, you, know, you know, sleep when I'm dead. You know, uh, you know, sleep is for wimps. Blah blah blah. No, it's the most powerful. Um, it's the most powerful recovery mechanism we have. And so, to invest heavily in sleep is is a great investment. I think where the next <clears throat> channel is is somewhere in the neurological domain. And what I mean by that is visual tracking systems, CNS, central nervous system, or brain kind of processing of that information and then how it translates out to the entire body. There's a few technologies. One I'm going to investigate over in London in uh, uh, about three weeks, Uh, systems called Oculo. And it's really interesting to me because they have this room that you go in with varying light degrees And you can train skill sets in there, such as hitting the baseball, reaction time type drills that actually rewrite code and rewrite a more efficient pathway for movement, especially in a sport where you've got to intercept something because vision writes the spatial equation that your whole body has to solve. So if you can improve your ability to write that equation and measure it, and train it and adapt it, that 95 mile an hour fastball is going to look like an 84 mile an hour fastball. And I think that is the next wave of independent physical system analysis in, in sports science.
0: The vision, it's funny you should say that I was actually at um, a dad daughter camp and was talking to a friend, a friend of mine who was a cricketer. And we were sort of talking yeah. about – because I just always assumed that you – know, like I, I just assumed cricket players had predetermined shots. He's like, no, 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 like the real skill in cricket is being able to pick up mm-hmm. line and length. And I, he goes, what about baseball? And I said, right. well, I played with some guys who claimed that they could see fat, ha- <clears throat> fat hand, skinny hand. So that is if it's a fast mm-hmm. ball, yep. the hand – is the palm is effectively facing the hitter. If it was a breaking ball yep. – you kind of yep. get the side, and I was like, I I could yep. never do it, and I just didn't believe that it was possible. And then you had other hitters who could pick up, or well, there's I could pick up the dot on the slider and this, that, and the other. And mm. I mm. I actually had reasonable vision, but I just couldn't. And I don't know that it was a vision thing; it was just more of a tracking thing. Like, could I, I couldn't get my eyes yep. from release to, um, and then picking up the ball from release, and that, that to me. So, I actually, i interested to know, like, what is – when you talk about vision and vision training, are you – is it picking up the spin? What is it that you're training the eyeball and, and ultimately yeah. trying to do?
1: <clears throat> well, first, first and foremost, and, and, mate, I'll send you a link to this as well. Um, when I start with an athlete, I try – I want to understand dominant arm, dominant leg, and, more importantly, dominant eye. Right, So we all have an eye dominance, and it's a really, really simple test where you basically hold your arms out at arm's length, make a circle, find a spot on the wall, open and close the eyes independently and see how much shift is, is, is in, that, um, in that position you're focused on. I'll, I'll send you this test to have a look at because it's really unique. So when, when you understand your dominant eye, if you're, say, a right-handed batter and your dominant eye is your right eye, You need to open up a little bit more to get a full three-dimensional picture occurring of what's happening with that picture so you can track the baseball. If you stay closed in your stance and you've only got that left eye, which is the non-dominant eye picking up that visual field, um, you will suffer as a hitter because you're only processing so much information. So the very first thing in any kind of visual training and assessment is to understand what the dominant eye is then the next side of the equation there's actually two visual systems there's the efferent and afferent visual system and basically one is the static one so if you go to the over here at the Department of Motor Vehicles. I don't even know what it's called in Australia now when you go and do your license test and they if they do a vision test on you, you know, where you where you've got to read the lines, that's very much static vision, right? They'll see how far you can get, you know, do you have quote unquote 2020 vision, right? Is is, is kind of what you're looking for in that test. More importantly for an athlete is is your ability to write that equation dimensionally. So you're using a very much a dynamic system of vision, and there are ways to train it. As I mentioned, this system Oculo that I'm really curious on right now, um, they do it through light, changing light. Um, we used to do it rudimentary, in a very rudimentary fashion. When I was in Taiwan, what I would do, I had a whole bucket of balls numbered and coloured and thank God numbers and colours translate in in Chinese just the same as they do thank God I wasn't having the right words on there but I would do flips in the cage with guys and as they were hitting the baseball I would tell them okay as you you hit it what was it as you hit it what was it it was black 5, it was red 4, it was this and the more I did that especially and I used to introduce this I introduced this with a player who had uh, been hit, um, he'd been hit in the hand and he was our starting shortstop um, Shumway is uh, his name, number 14 with the brothers I introduced it with him uh, while he was going through a rehab phase uh, and we were just doing these these single arm drills, when he came back, it was the first time he'd ever trained Vision, when he came back um, his, his ball exit velocity was up like 10 I think it was 10 to 12 miles an hour and he um, your know, batting average is a shitty statistic. That improved dramatically, but his run production was, was, was improving as well. And the only thing we changed was we added visual training and he has never left that, right? He's still playing today and he's still, you know, visual training is, is part of that mantra. And he ended up getting a lot of the other players around it. So there are training methodologies that you can do. Um, like that one I just suggested, get some, get a bag of old baseballs get some, you know, those big chunky felt tip textures we called them in Australia, right? Red, black, you know, write numbers on them, blue, whatever, and short toss, long toss, work back where you're throwing the baseball, and it's okay to hit the ball, but the more important thing is to to identify the color and the number on that ball. Mm. If you can do that, we know we're training a very finite process. Pete Rose, you know, the stories, I've met him and the stories I hear from him, he'd go into the cage. the cage would be set up at 60 feet. He'd go up at 40 feet. He would turn the other way and look backwards. And when he heard that, when he heard the arm, you know, of the Iron Mike uh, pitching machine, when he heard that flip, he would turn around to pick up where the ball was and, and get his swing off. So he trained a very um, almost ballistic kind of approach to it. And I don't think you need to be that aggressive, but I think, again, it doesn't matter how good your body is. It doesn't matter how good that physical system is. You can be the best athlete on the planet. If you're not writing the correct equations visually through your mind to execute, especially in baseball, the toughest thing in the world is to hit a baseball. Um, proven to be the toughest thing in the world. If you're not writing that correctly, consistently, it doesn't matter how good your body is. Right? It, it just doesn't matter. So. Um, their training vision, I think, is critical and probably one of the most underlooked things. And at AIS, uh, we actually got access to a software, uh, a buddy of mine runs the company, it's called Visual Edge. We tested every single player in front of a computer screen to understand whether or not they had, you know, what their field of vision would look like. So if we wanted to take, i give you an example, say Daryl George as an infielder, if We wanted to take Daryl because he had a hot bat and put him in the outfield to bring somebody else in, maybe a Mitch Nelson to play third base during during a tournament. We needed to be sure that Daryl George had the visual ability to triangulate in three-dimensional space a fly ball versus a ground ball, right? So we had all this data ready to go. Who was the correct choice? If we want to keep a hot bat, David would look at me. And say, okay, this is what I want to do. Can we move this player to the outfield from the infield? A great example of this is Schwaber, who's now um, with the Boston Red Sox. When he was with the Chicago Cubs, he came up as a catcher. And they used to say that when they moved him to the outfield, because he wasn't that great a catcher, but he was a really good hitter, moved him to the outfield, they said, this guy, he couldn't run a route to save his life. It had nothing to do with his physical skills. It had everything to do with the way his vision was picking up the baseball, and so he had to work incredibly hard on developing a, a new visual system that could pick up a fly ball as opposed to just you know, being the catcher behind the plate, you know, navigating you know, the fastball, you know, breaking ball, etc. So it's critical. It, it's probably the most underlooked part of, the, of a training system, and done correctly. Um, in the course of a training day, vision should be there every day, every single day. And I think um, if it's vision, neural, neurological kind of training, that probably constitutes in a new world with new technology coming out. I think that is going to constitute probably fifteen to twenty percent of total training. Yeah, before. right.
0: Well, there you go. It, may, <laughs> it makes sense, right? You use your eyes to see the ball. That so, it makes perfect sense. Um, exactly. I've exactly. taken up a lot of your time again and we probably could go for another hour on some of this stuff, but, um, yeah. probably should let you go. Really appreciate it. Um, we went sort of technical on some stuff, but other stuff was, I think pretty easy yeah. to, to understand. And, um, I think it's important for, you know, it, it's a, it is complex some of this stuff. So it's really important mm. that, yeah. parents and players understand that it is complex, but um, there's always people we can reach out to and get the answer. So, Gary, thank you very much. Really appreciate it, and uh, we look forward to catching up in the future.
1: Absolutely, Stuart. Um, I, I really appreciate it, and uh, if I can be of assistance to anybody, I mean, I'm I'm literally going to be an email away, and uh, I look forward to. I just want to see the growth of Australian baseball, man. This is uh, it's, it's it's something that is really high on my priority list. I really appreciate it.
0: All right, man. Take care.
1: Thanks, buddy.